as the ground keeps shifting, keeping my balance square. Trying not to care about this man whom Marvin loves. But that's my life. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 19th, 2020. I've lost track of days. Uh, my name is James Marino, and in the podcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com, which is a very important uh, (laughs) website for today's topic. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at fellowspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Peter, uh, along with uh, your abbreviated bio, your extended bio talks about your involvement in the Drama Desk Awards um, as a a part of uh, this year's nominating committee. You've done that for a number of years, correct? Yeah. um, I I guess a total of perhaps 10, maybe, um, if we had them all. Former president. Yeah, um, certainly um, a few times there. Uh, the nominations will be announced on Tuesday, uh, I think at 2 o'clock, and uh, we'll see what happens. We did meet yesterday by Zoom, uh, which worked out uh, rather well. Um, frankly, uh, <laughs> it worked out so well, we had a, a different system on how to vote. Uh, usually we uh. get sh- sheets of uh, paper and um, and write 54321 with our choices and then pass them in. And, but uh, because of Zoom, um, every <laughs> nominee was uh, labeled from A to whatever, you know, uh, if they uh-huh. were you know, 15 to category A to O. Um, and we just said, you know, B, 5, L, 4, et cetera. It went so quickly. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, it went so quickly. And um, so uh, the nominations are done. And um, Tuesday at 2. Tuesday, April 21st, uh, be announced online. And uh, Matt Nashley will cover it on, uh, today on Broadway as well on the Wednesday show. So uh, if, in fact, you do miss it. So, uh, and, and it will be covering theater up until March 13th. Uh, March 12th, I would think, uh, because 6 six we decided to put into next year, um, even though 6 was about to open, even though all seven nominators had seen it, the point is the voters, uh, many hadn't, yeah. um, mm. and as a result, um, it wouldn't be fair to 6, which would lose in so many categories because, of course, uh, voters hadn't seen it. So while we feel bad you know, from the vantage point that um, it's always better to nominate shows when they're fresh the fact remains is it was just no sense in doing it under those circumstances and um so that's just gonna have to wait till next year but the problem was of course that so many um of the award 
nominations turned out to be for off Broadway because we had so many fewer Broadway shows mm. than we expected. I mean, it would have been a very different uh, series of nominations. I'm sure if indeed we had all these other um, attractions that was supposed to open and couldn't. So, so uh, look for a very heavy off Broadway year. Okay. So, uh, Michael, this week, you got a chance to see a few streaming shows. One of them was the Jonathan Larson Project at 54 Below. Um, tell us about this stream. Uh, how did it go? And uh, what did you think? Well, it was wonderful. I had missed it live. I'm not sure uh, when the live performance was not that long ago. Uh, but this was the Jonathan Larson Project uh, consisting of lesser known Jonathan Larson songs from various sources. Um, and the note on it uh, on the broadcast, the telecast, the webcast, whatever, was the Jonathan Larson Project is an evening of Jonathan's unheard work. Songs from never produced shows like 1984 and Superbia. Songs that were cut from Rent and Tick, Tick, Boom. Songs written for theatrical reviews and songs written for the radio. Songs never before publicly performed or recorded. Songs about politics and love in New York City. And uh, the concert was streamed on Thursday, April 16th, which was the 24th anniversary of the first preview of Rent on Broadway. Mm. And it starred Nick Blameyer, who we know from Tick, Tick, Boom, Found and Godspell, Lauren Marcus uh, of Be More Chill, Beatsville and Company, Andy Mientis uh, from NBC Smash and Spring Awakening and Les Miserables, um, Krista Rodriguez, Spring Awakening, First Date, The Adams Family, and George Salazar, uh, Be More Chill, The Lightning Thief, Tick, Tick, Boom, with special guest Adam chandler Barrett, and it was directed and conceived by Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Uh, it really was wonderful. I... Uh, one of the songs, um, two of the songs I had heard somewhere before, uh, and uh, there were there were so many fabulous moments in it, and it's so impressive, among other things, about how Jonathan Larson was able to write in so many different styles uh, and well in so many different styles. Rent alone has lots of different types of music i would say in it uh but the other shows even if you if you do view them in aggregate they have even more so and one of the songs that i've always thought was so neat is uh it's the title is out of my dreams but it's almost the opposite <laughs> emotion of the song that has that title in oklahoma because uh the lyrics for jonathan larson's out of my dreams go get out of my dreams and stay out of my dreams. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just think that's neat. And I'm sure mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. he, you know, that he was very much aware of oh, yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and then another song that I really lo love, I'm going to have to listen to it again and again, and again, because I, I, I think it's extraordinary. It's called iron Mike. And uh, of all things, it's about the Exxon Valdez disaster. Wow, that, the oil spill, and it's about the like the how it happened and the the people responsible and 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 how they must have felt, and it's it's it has the quality of like an old nautical song, uh, like something you might. Um, uh, actually, it sounds like something you might have seen in the last or heard in the last ship, and those types of evocations of old 
uh, sailing tunes. Uh, but of course, the lyrics are, are very up to date. So that's a that's a fascinating piece. Um, and then the other thing I watched, which there are so many things, um, so many options now. People are being so good about uh, streaming various types of performances. Uh, often for fundraising purposes uh, for the Actors Fund and places like that. But then there are all kinds of other things as well. And one of them um, I did happen to see, uh, this is not easily accessible, but there was a video version of the fabulous 1999 uh, Broadway production of Death of a Salesman that um, someone posted. I'm not sure if they posted it specifically in honor of Brian Dennehy, uh, who just died. But uh, regardless, it, 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 I did find it, and it, it was extraordinary as I remembered it being. that This was a production that started out in Chicago, directed by Robert Falls, um, and then it did come to Broadway in 99, and then it was uh, televised for on Showtime, actually, um, and in addition to Brian Dennehy, it's, we had, it has Elizabeth France as Linda Lohman, probably the definitive Linda Lohman, um, Ted Koch as Happy, and um, not Kevin Anderson as Biff. He had uh, originated the role on Broadway in that production, but was replaced by Ron Eldard. Um, I'm, I'm not sure you know, the, of the circumstances of that, but, uh, but by the time they... they taped it or filmed it. It was Ron Eldard. And it's just extraordinary, the direction and the performances. Uh, Dennehy is absolutely, I, I, I can't say definitive only because um, I think there, you know, there are so many places, so many ways to play that role, even in just in terms of um, physical type. Uh, you, uh, Dennehy is a big man like Lee J. Cobb was, so they share that, but their voices are very different, and I would say their acting styles are very different. Then, of course, you had uh, famous willies like uh, Dustin Hoffman, who is something completely different in terms of physical and vocal type. And uh, it's a very rich role that, that stands up to multiple interpretations and it, it really is one one of the the greatest plays, uh, greatest American plays, greatest plays by anyone ever written. So I was um, glad to see that because I had not seen the TV version, although I did experience it live, and I'll never forget it. So uh, I found something on YouTube that's a two-minute clip of it, and the person who posted on YouTube said that... Um, it was shown on cable television, and this guy recorded it for his university acting class. He, I guess ah. he's a, a theater professor of some sort. Mm. Uh, so I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, you get a little snippet of it, but it seems to have been played on television at some point. Yeah, uh, Showtime. I, I didn't check to – actually, didn't check to see if it's uh, commercially available. I, uh, I'll do so. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, – in the streaming world, uh, I've been uh, watching Andrew Lloyd Webber's productions um, on YouTube that are playing for, mm. I guess, Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday. Uh, and this week was uh, the 25th anniversary of Phantom of the Opera uh, at Royal Albert with... Um, oh, um, Ramin Karimlu. Yeah, Ramin. 
uh, and uh, Sierra Bogus. Um, yes. I loved it, and it 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 made me so so happy because I've gone back to the Majestic a few times to see Phantom with with uh, friends and family who come in from out of town or other types of things reasons to go to see Phantom and. I've not really been moved as much as I was in this production. This, I mean, Michael, that orchestra, mm. 200 pieces in that mm. orchestra. Uh, certainly um, a special one-night-only thing that's not financially feasible to do on an ongoing basis, but what a great cast and what a, what a great performance. If uh, you do not catch it on YouTube... Um, it is available at Amazon uh, to purchase or to rent, and your local library might also have it. People don't, um, although the libraries are closed right now, once the libraries reopen, it's a great source of a lot of things Oh yes, uh, to, that you might want to check out. People over, overlook that. They don't think that you know things like Phantom of the Opera are going to be available at the library, but it is, at least in my library. And, uh, <laughs> so... That's uh, it's really great. Um, we have a, a lot of a lot of news this week. Uh, we just want to, you know, we, we don't have anything new about Nick Cordero, but we're thinking about Nick and his wife and his child Elvis and um, Ashley and Elvis are posting updates about Nick, and uh, we're all thinking about him, but also that um, um, we. Uh, you know, as Michael did talk about, we did have the passing of Brian Dennehy. You guys have, uh, Peter, you have anything to say about Mr. Dennehy? I thought he was terrific, but I, I never met him, never interviewed him. Um, but, uh, of course, like everybody else, appreciated him. I, I really liked him very much in The Iceman Cometh as well. I thought he mm. was terrific. First time I ever saw them was in a movie. Um and that was Cocoon, where mm. uh, I think that was his big breakthrough role. I may be wrong about that because I don't know much about the movies, but... Uh, Boy, he made such a wonderful impression there as um, the head alien, so to speak, and um, and uh, really charm. You know, that's that's really something that he he genuinely had charm. Uh, as he could be tough, of course, and you, you have to be tough when you're playing Willie Loman, and you certainly um, have to show that you were tough at one point in your life when you um, are in that bar and the Ice Man cometh. But um, I, I liked him when he had the chance to have that twinkle in his eye. And, of course, Cocoon <laughs> did allow him to have quite a twinkle in his eye, but that's another thing entirely. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, um, but um, I, I have to say that there were times that I felt like I knew him. And I know that's a bizarre thing to say since I, I, I don't think I was even in the same room with him ever. But that said, um, there was something about him that made me feel like I knew him. And that's a wonderful quality to have. Yeah, I mean, I think that every man quality, if that's the right word, uh, that really served him in Death of a Salesman. And that's one of the things I was referring to about how he was so different from Lee J. Cobb, for example, who was a more towering kind of a presence i would say mm -hmm. uh, oh another related thing i did find on on youtube which is i think a lot more findable is there was a amazing interview uh, at the time of death of a salesman with uh, uh charlie rose interviewed mr dennehy and arthur miller wow. so if you just type in those uh, charlie rose brian dennehy arthur miller i'm sure you'll come up with that and it's extraordinary 
It's so funny that uh, you've mentioned two things uh, so far in this podcast that um, I, that I'll link together in my life. And that is, uh, hmm. you mentioned Valdez, Valdez, Alaska, where I was in 1996 interviewing Arthur Miller. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, <That's>... <laughs> and Valdez is a town with about 3,900 people, but uh, they do have a wonderful conference every year up there. Yeah. The playwrights. So anyway, but uh, you know, there is an irony there. By the way, I've never understood why it's pronounced Valdez when it's spelled D-E-Z. But just parenthetical comment. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think Houston Street really was Houston yeah. Street, but people, um, uh, immigrants in the neighborhood, just thought it was Houston. So I think it might be something like that. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. You can see Russia from there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I was uh, able to easily find the uh, the Charlie Rose oh, interview, great. so I'll put that in the show notes uh, as well for anybody who'd like to uh, to check that out. It's worth a look. Can you imagine just sitting there with Arthur Miller? He and you know he was, you know, he lived to a ripe old age, and he was around for those mm. those last several productions of Crucible. I remember that the one time I. Uh, got to interview him was in a they did like a sort of a round robin kind of a thing where they were bringing in people one by one to talk with him for a bit and i think it was for the crucible so that that was you know obviously unforgettable wow all right so uh what else have we got here in the list of things to talk about last week we talked about um the cancellation of the Disney 25th anniversary uh, streaming benefit concert. Uh, And as predicted in last week's uh, broadcast, um, the Musicians Union uh, decided to be magnanimous and uh, accept the $50,000 from Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS as payment and uh, allow the stream to go on. The stream was on Friday evening, so unfortunately we've already missed it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's been archived and it's still available, but I'd imagine not. But um, it did actually happen, but we did want to follow up on that to say that it did actually happen yes. after we talked about it last week. So here we are, um, uh, actually uh, about a month ago or so, we were talking about what do we do with this week on Broadway? Um when there's no shows because we primarily focus on talking about what we saw in the last week. And Peter and Michael uh, suggested a number of different things. I'm not sure which one of you suggested it, but it was suggested that we talk about Desert Island Discs. And then one of our listeners, Carol Lockhart, really pushed <laughs> us over, over over the end zone and uh, – <laughs> And um, sent us an email and said that we should do this. And that really, really put a uh, sealed the deal for us. So for those who don't know what Desert Island Discs is, uh, Desert Island Discs is um, a, prog- a radio program that the BBC has had since 1942. And they have a guest each week. And uh, the guest chooses eight different things that they can bring to a, uh, if they were stranded on a desert island. Uh, and so we'll call this the Broadway radio version of Desert Island Discs. And Peter and Michael, let's throw it open to you two. Peter, first, what would you bring 
Uh, what's one of the things that you would bring to a desert island? Well, I'm going to mention um, a, an album that just got re-released, and that's Celebration, a 1969 musical by Jones and Schmidt. Um, mm. it, it was um, essentially their last Broadway musical. Um, <clears throat> they did have uh, one that closed out of town and one that almost happened, a musical version of Our Town that Mary Martin was going to do. But Celebration 1969 has just been re-released by Harbinger Records with a marvelous booklet. I don't mean a, a, a little... Um, tiny booklet that fits into a, a jewel box's front cover. No, I mean a booklet uh, with a lot of pages. Um, Tom Jones, actually, the book writer and lyricist to Celebration, did the uh, book. So God love him for doing it because um, Tom's uh, getting up there. So, but the music and the lyrics are the thing and they're terrific. I have a big history with celebration from the vantage point that um, I had just got married and my wife and I came to town and we went immediately to the ambassador theater where Chicago was not playing, believe it or not. And uh, celebration was, and um, we went to the box office and we were going to be in New York one night, one ticket left. Oh. Just just married and already sorry, grateful. So anyway, um, so the album came out and I'm telling you, um, it ruled our record player uh, for the longest time. Um, it was so it's a it's a, a show that I associate with the happy early days of my marriage. But aside from that, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, score. Uh, with many funny numbers um, given to a character named Mr. Rich, who Tom Jones told me was actually patterned after David Merrick. And you have to remember <laughs> that Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt did two musicals with David Merrick, 110 in the Shade in 1963, and I Do, I Do in 1966. So they were very familiar with David Merrick. And so they made him this character who um, was just consumed with money and um, just terrible to people. So, but... Um, <laughs> Also um, in the cast was Susan Watson, um, who uh, certainly showed up in Broadway uh, in the in the 60s and um, even into the 70s. Um, in the, she was the original Kim McAfee uh, in Bye Bye Birdie. She also appeared in Ben Franklin in Paris, though I didn't see her because she took over um, out of town. When I saw it in Boston, Jacqueline Mayro, the original Baby June, was playing it and by the way, I thought she was fine. But anyway, Susan Watson came in. Um, Susan Watson, also known for um, No, No, Nanette, playing Nanette in that famous 1971 revival. Anyway, this is a story about an orphan, wonderfully played by Michael Glenn Smith, and um, a young woman he falls in love with. She has great ambition. Uh, she wants to be somebody. There's a great song uh, by that title. And um, they have their ups and downs. There's a wonderfully wistful song after they break up called, I'm glad to see you got what you want. Um, and it's, it's, it's so tender and it, the, the evocative nature of the piece is just terrific because you can really tell that each of them is so sad that he or she couldn't be what the other person wanted. And that comes through in the music. A celebration was also famous for using atypical instruments. This isn't a conventional Broadway show uh, with um, of the era. There's no overture, to say the least. And um, it, it isn't orchestrated in the way that uh, most Broadway musicals were. Don't look for Phil Lang uh, orchestrations. They're not going to be there. Hmm. They're, they're very tribal in a strange sort of way. So, um, and by the way, there's a lyric... Um, uh, in one song called Not My Problem, God is Dead, That's What They Said. I read it in an interview. That was a specific reference to a July 1968 
Time Magazine cover, which said, is God dead? Because that was a question, and that was a very famous article at the time, and that's why that lyric refers to that. Um, so anyway, I can really highly recommend Celebration, originally on Capitol Records, and then got another recording, uh, got another issue on another uh, label, maybe Finsworth Alley. Um, but anyway, this is the third time it's been out, and um, the third time really is the charm. And I, I do believe this is the time to get it, especially with that wonderful reading material, since we all have so much time to read. <laughs> All right, Michael, what did you uh, have for your one of your Desert Island discs? Well, I thought I would um, take both the original Broadway cast and the film soundtrack recordings of West Side Story because they're both so phenomenal. And before I talk about the recordings themselves, I was just thinking that um, this just popped into my head the other day when I was listening to Something's Coming. Uh, West Side Story is so genius and so rich that there are, you know, countless moments in it that don't even necessarily get that much attention and are still absolute genius. For example, uh, I mean, I don't think this is a, a lyric that people especially focus on, but in something's coming tony sings all right so he's he he has this feeling of anticipation that something incredible is about to happen something major and he doesn't even know what it is but he he feels it very strongly and uh at one point he sings around the corner or whistling down the river So, I mean, that image of whistling down the river is so beautiful. Uh, I guess it, it, it's, it's basically saying, envisioning this thing that's about to happen as the wind. But it doesn't say wind. <laughs> it mm -hmm. just says whistling down the river. And, and, and you think you hear the word wind when you haven't heard it. Because there's this image of, of, of this thing. Thing whistling down the river, and uh, and I just think that's incredible. And as I said, something that I don't think if if someone were to pick the genius lyrics in West Side Story, they, I don't think they would necessarily hit on that one. But that is, you know, a perfect example of, <laughs> of Sondheim just, you know, being almost godlike in his ability to do something like that. And then another thing I thought of um, in West Side Story is there is a piece of music that rarely gets any attention, and it's the jump. It's called the jump in the uh, dance at the gym. It's the last uh, little dance you hear in dance at the gym, and it goes do-do-do. Do, 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 oh, yeah, do, yeah, do, yeah. Right. And one reason it doesn't get much attention is that in the show, it's, it's played below dialogue, under dialogue. Ah. Yes. And, um, and in fact, if you listen to, um, there are some recordings of, uh, of it from the stage version. Uh, it's not on the original broadcast recording. Mm -hmm. um, but there are other, some recordings of the stage version, and it's very, uh, in that version, it's very lightly, very lightly orchestrated. Um, 
and because of, because it does have the dialogue over it. Um, however, on the on the soundtrack album, mm-hmm. they have it without the dialogue, and it's more fully orchestrated. And not only is it more fully orchestrated, but that's one of the cuts uh, that features the legendary Shelley Mann playing on it uh-huh. uh, uh who would later do a, an album with his trio a whole album west side story uh that that really helped to establish the score um so if you listen to that <laughs> on the soundtrack I, I think is the best recording of it you will say oh my god <laughs> this is nobody ever ever pays attention to this and it's absolutely amazing so that's an example of the genius of leonard bernstein and i just wanted to read some figures here because i find these so extraordinary the original broadway cast recording uh was recorded three days after the show at the winter garden and it was released in october 1957 in both mono and stereo formats um those were the days when uh columbia started recording cast albums in the fall of 1956 i believe but um they didn't actually have the technology to release them on lp in stereo yet and that didn't happen until 1958 but uh Thank heaven they had the wherewithal to uh, realize that this was, you know, something they would be able to do soon. And so they were prepared and they started. um, It turned out to be, I guess, maybe almost two years before they were able to actually release them uh, in stereo on LPs. So anyway, in... uh, now, and that album, the original cast recording, uh, of course, came out in 57, but it, in 1962, it reached number five on Billboard's pop album chart. And that was because uh, the movie was released in 61 and became a phenomenal hit in its own right. So it, uh, it retroactively had this, this, uh, this bump effect on the original recording, which was already there. Um, and it's certified gold by the RIAA in January, on January 12th, 1962. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and by the way, it was recorded at uh, the CBS 30th Street Studio in uh, New York City, which is where a lot, if not all, of the Columbia cast albums were recorded at that time. I've, I've never known where on 30th Street it was exactly. Uh, Peter, did you happen to learn that? No, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I, I don't think it's there anymore. Um, and just quickly, because this is so amazing, the soundtrack, the film soundtrack of West Side Story was released in 1961 and spent 54 weeks at number one mm-hmm. on Billboard's album charts, giving it the longest run at number one of any album in history. Mm-hmm. Although some lists instead credit Michael Jackson's Thriller on the grounds that West Side Story was listed on a chart for stereo albums only at a time when many albums were recorded in mono. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of a caveat there, but uh, most people say that it is the still to this day, the the longest run at number one of any album in history. I think that's just extraordinary. So, uh, and I think it's appropriate because both of those recordings are phenomenal. And if you have them both together, you get almost all of the score. And uh, there are other worthy recordings of it uh, as well of, of West Side Story. But I think if you have those two, um, that's all you need. <laughs> hmm. 
Uh, Peter, how about you? Uh, what's your second? Uh, Pins and Needles. <clears throat> it's a 1937 review, and of course, 1937 is a little early for doing cast albums. So as a result, in 1962, uh, they did a 25th anniversary album. Uh, this is a score by Harold Rome, and it was a topical review. Um, basically a very left-wing review, actually, um, uh, as one can tell from the opening number, Sing Me a Song of Social Significance. And um, Harold Rome, who wrote I Can Get a Few Wholesale, asked um, one of the people in Wholesale, uh, a woman named Barbara Streisand, to uh, come and do some songs, along with some other artists as well. It's a terrific recording. It's a very good late-night recording. Uh, sometimes, you know, late at night when we want to listen to a cast album, you know, it's not the time for Lorelei because that's awfully loud. But, but Pins and Needles um, has very simple orchestration, piano, guitar, uh, bass. And so it's very nice listening. But the songs are very, very funny. And uh, Streisand has a song very much like her Miss Marmelstein song called um, Nobody Makes a Pass at Me. <laughs> it, it was originally done by a, a woman who um, was not by conventional standards attractive. And she couldn't understand why she was, um, wasn't getting dates because she did all the right things. She even read Gone with the Wind, uh, she <laughs> said. Um, <clears throat> And uh, there's a wonderful song called Change to a Daisy about a woman who went to college and at a time when so many women didn't um, and got this degree. And now she's working in Macy's um, in the foundations department, uh, meaning girdles. And um, there's a cheat of a rhyme, but it's, it's so delicious that I, I don't quarrel with it, where she talks about dealing with every woman's figure, making the uh, big things small and the small things bigger. Um, so it's a terrific score. And um I, I really um, enjoy it immeasurably, and I really hope that some people look into this score to hear it, um, because it's one that's not talked about very much, needless to say. I know in 1978, um, there was a production at the Roundabout Theater, when the Roundabout was on 23rd Street, between 9th and 10th, 8th and 9th. Um, Under a uh, supermarket. No, this is a different place. This is where there's a it's it's a movie theater now, but only for like SAG screenings or something like that. Um, so um, I think it's between eighth and ninth. Anyway, um, it was really something because um, I had the third seat off the aisle, and the the first two seats were occupied by a couple who met during a, a rally for um, left-wingers back in 1937. <laughs> and their first date was Pins and Needles, and here they were um, experiencing it again. So um, I don't know if we'll ever see a production of Pins and Needles again, but thank God that the album still exists and is still available on Masterworks Broadway, I'm happy to say. Not hard to find at all. And um, I, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. That is a great album and, and just so wonderful that they made it. Um, mm. You know, at, so long after the fact, and that Streisand, you know, participated at a time when she would still do something like that. <laughs> yes, and also had a sense of humor about herself. Oh gosh, yeah. and that cut—that is a great cut. The lyrics to that song you mentioned, "Nobody Makes a Pass of Me," they're so charming and funny. And I, yeah. I don't think—I think even by modern standards, they're—they're they're funny. I don't—I don't think it's—you um, might expect it to be too dated in terms of 
you know, women, the, the view of women. But I, I, I don't think so. I think it's just sweet and cute. And delightful. Well, again, um, uh, this is when Streisand, as I said, had a sense of humor. Um, yeah. You might want to check out Randy Rainbow's um, faux <laughs> interview with Streisand to see um, what I'm talking about, uh, because uh, it's a very imperious. Again, it never happened. You know, Randy Rainbow. I mean, you know, he just gets <laughs> clips from here or there, you know, but uh, it but the point is, this is actually footage of Streisand in somebody's interview where she was uh, very difficult and aloof and imperious and all that. So, um, but there was a time when she was funny and here's a good chance to find out about it. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up. He, he talk about brilliance. He's oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to look that up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I found it already, so it'll be in the show notes. Oh, thank okay. you. Thank you, James. <laughs> so, Michael, what's your next album? Well, I had a thought, and I'm sure maybe Peter did too, um, that I don't know if this is cheating, but if it's going to be Desert Island Discs, uh, we might want to have uh, the ones that have the most content on them. Hmm. Uh, you know, to give us more to listen to, if, especially if we're limited to uh, our choices. So uh, I went through a list of the longer cast albums, the multiple disc ones. Uh, but I also found that, uh, you know, of course, a lot of them are desirable, not only in terms of quantity, but also in terms of quality. And one of the longest would also be one of the best, I think, in terms of quality for me is The Most Happy Fellow. Yeah, uh, with a great score and lyrics by the amazing, brilliant Frank Lesser. Uh, such a wonderful story, first of all, about uh, you know flawed human beings making mistakes and then uh, being being able to forgive each other because they love each other so much, which is hopefully you know always a timeless story. Um, James, I don't think mentioned that. Uh, that the New York Times uh, just did one of these mm. Desert Island things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Most Happy Fellow was actually uh, one of Jesse Green's picks. Uh, it was Jesse Green and, and Ben Bramley naming their Desert Islanders. And so when I got to that, I was like, well, well I certainly agree with that one. <laughs> and the, um, your uh, choice there would be the original recording, which extraordinarily was released on three LPs in 1956 by Columbia, uh, produced uh, by the great Goddard Lieberson, and uh, with an amazing cast, Robert Weedy and uh, Joe Sullivan heading the cast. Uh, it, it was, uh, I mentioned earlier that um, Columbia started recording in stereo at, in the fall of 56, and this, I believe, was the, uh, the spring of 56, so it was earlier, and so it just missed that, unfortunately, but um, it's like the best mono sound you'll ever hear mm -hmm. uh and the it, it is full the, the full 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 show maybe a f sure a f yeah. maybe a f couple of yeah, measures of yeah, dance right. music or something um but all of the dialogue and and very well very uh, the dialogue very naturally performed in the studio and dovetailing into the beautiful arias and ensemble pieces and the orchestrations are lush and gorgeous, and it's just uh, an absolute treasure of a recording. So that would absolutely be one of one of my top Desert Island discs, or three Desert Island discs, depending, <laughs> depending on which format you have it in. <laughs> I, I think the, the tough part about that, Michael, is to uh, 
uh, when you're bringing three discs onto a desert island to keep the sand out of them. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking uh, if, if this is not too on the nose uh, for a desert island disc, one might also want uh, Once on this Once island. on this island. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the original, yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. Although uh, Kosh was Song of the Sand. Song of the mm-hmm. Sand. Yeah. yeah. Um, Peter, what's your next? Definitely in trousers. Um, This was uh, William Finn's first show, and I will never forget um, my friend Richard Norton, one of the great collectors of all time, calling me and saying uh, in 1978, just an offhand remark, I hear in trousers is good. It was a Playwrights Horizons. I didn't know anything about it, Um, but um, I wasn't reviewing at the time. I was new to the city, and I... um, went and paid my $3 for a ticket and went crazy for this music. I mean, I was seriously, the expression jumping out of your seat is something that people say when they mean they were excited. I was jumping out of my seat by the time they got to um, Marvin takes a shower, uh, the 11 o'clock number. Um, uh, This was essentially the prequel to uh, falsettos. Not that anybody knew that was coming at that point in time, but I think it's his, his most exciting score. And I am telling you, I remember I went the night the Oscars were on and I thought, all right, you know, I'll come back home and, you know, I'll, I'll see the big awards. That'll be fine. I am telling you, I came home and called every human being I knew who cared about musical theater and said, this guy, William Finn is amazing. And in the cast, wow, this guy named Chip Zine, this woman named Mary Testa, this woman named Alison Frazier. I mean, incredible cast. And um, so uh, when I finished, it was about 11 o'clock. I have no idea who won the Oscars uh, because I wasn't interested anymore. I was just interested in spreading the word about William Finn. Um, I started calling my friends in Los Angeles where it was 8 o'clock at night. And um, it was, I dare say there are 50 people in this country who, when they hear the name William Finn, think of me because um, I was the one who <laughs> went crazy for him so early. And I wish I could say that I have um, have the same enthusiasm that I have for in trousers for his other scores. They're good. They're very good. They're wonderful. However, um, I don't think he's ever topped in trousers. And I don't know if it's an easy album to get anymore. Bruce Echo um, put it out. It's by far his most valuable contribution to the American theater, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, I wish I could say Matahari, a score that I admire tremendously. And um, I, I'll never forget going to a backers audition for its um, off-Broadway production called Ballad for a Firing Squad. And if that were done with a piano as opposed to a synthesizer, Matahari would be on my list as well another Bruce Yeko album because it's a terrific score. But um, I have this um, unwritten rule that um, if you have a show that's in an era when synthesizers were not invented, you definitely should not use synthesizers. I, I really believe if Matahari had piano, uh, bass, and drums, I would be listening to it every day. Um, so that almost gets to mention, but in Trousers, with, again, another discovery, Michael Starobin. He did the orchestrations. There is no other album in my collection that sounds like In Trousers. A distinctive orchestration as well as a distinctive score. Hmm. Okay, Michael, what's yours next? Well, for historical purposes, I would say the John McGlynn recording of Showboat. Oh, what a good yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was just such an achievement at... Uh, that has so much music on it that it's 
if you get it on CD, it's three CDs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, the Most Happy Fella uh, works out to two CDs because mm-hmm. they, they hold so much more than LPs did. But The Showboat is three CDs. And it's uh, basically, as far as I know, every scrap of music and lyrics that were ever written for Showboat um, uh, including uh, the film version, uh, but also uh, there were so many editions ch- and cuts in the various uh, various editions of it ever since it premiered on Broadway in 1927. Um, so that is a, of a great historical, a great, great, great historical significance. And of course, the the, the uh, d- just the quality uh, again of the Jerome Kern music and the Oscar Hammerstein lyrics is is amazing and it's so seminal is the word that's often used it 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 really was a an epic making production in so many ways uh, the seriousness of the subject matter uh primarily and uh, you know with songs like old man river that have become such a part of uh, the fabric of american culture that some people think it was a folk song you know <laughs> um mm-hmm. in- incredible but no it was written by jerome kern and oscar amistein in the in the 20s um and uh here i'll mention two porgy and bess um the towering work by george gershwin and dubose hayward and ira gershwin uh which there again um uh was uh, heavily cut even for its original Broadway production because it, it, there's so much uh, that in it, so much in it, uh, Gershwin kind of overwrote, uh, to be honest. And, and it, everything in it is gorgeous, but there's just so much of it that they had to cut it way down. Um, so various uh, recordings since then have have um, reinstated uh you know, various sections. And some of them I think are considered note, note complete. Um, I think at least uh, three of them, the 1976 Houston Grand Opera recording, which uh, that was a production that came to Broadway and certainly was one of the highlights of my life. And then there was a, a London, uh, a recording on London records that was just a studio recording that came out that same year. I think they were both kind of celebrating the, uh, the bicentennial of the United States by record by putting out these um, full length recordings of Porgy and Bess, and then I think the Simon Rattle um, uh, recording from Glyndebourne uh, in London um, is also note complete. But there are many wonderful ones, and so uh, I would I would pick. Yeah, I guess I would pick the uh, 76 recording, the Houston Grand Opera one, if I had to pick just one and uh, have uh, more than three hours of music (laughs) uh, to uh, occupy me, more than three hours worth of incredibly beautiful music and great lyrics. Hmm. You know, um, when you talk about Showboat and you say every scrap, um, boy, is that true? There's there's a section um, called "It's Getting Hotter in the North," hmm. and um, no lyrics, but my, what an intoxicating melody! Uh, hmm. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, I remember uh, one year um, on New Year's Day, I said, "Okay, I've got to get the New Year off to a good start." What should I play? And I thought, mm, it's got to be Showboat. You know, and I played that recording, um, mm-hmm. all three discs. Um, it's, it's quite a long one, but boy, is it rewarding. And I am telling you, in um, Can't Help Loving That Man of Mine, the introductory dialogue that Teresa Stratus delivers about um, 
you got to be careful with love um, that um, it can really uh, do you in. Mm. But when she uh, sings Can't Help Loving That Man and she hits that high note uh, in the B section, good Lord, does she hit it beautifully. So um, that's the definitive um, Can't Help Loving That Man as far as I'm concerned. Mm. All right, Peter, uh, what's next on your list? Well, I know this is going to sound strange, but um, um, <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, Top Banana. This is a show from the early 50s. Phil, wow. Silvers, Phil Silvers was in it. And um, so was Rosemary, better known from the Dick Van Dyke show. And um, it's I'll admit that some of the ballads are syrupy. Uh, between the juveniles, as they were called in those days. Um, though I do like the opening uh, song that one of the juveniles has called You're So Beautiful That. Lana Turner Turns Green. Liz Taylor, Greer and Arlene. Um, and, of course, uh, those are the stars of the day. Uh, Liz was last longer than many of the others. Um, but uh, Top and Inner is about a, a t- the new world of TV. I mean, it was such a topical show at its time. And um, so it's about Jerry Biffle, played by Phil Silvers, who has this um, variety show every week. And um, the troubles, trials, tribulations of this, that, and the other thing of getting a show on. But it's more than that. There are many subplots and what have you. There's a movie version that every now and then I try to get through and I never get very far. Rosemary in her autobiography said that um, all her numbers were cut because she wouldn't sleep with the producer. <laughs> That's her word against who knows whose. But anyway, it's too bad because her songs are terrific, especially one called I Fought Every Step of the Way, in which uh, she talks about a man who's trying to seduce her. Um, and uh, eventually she does give in. Uh, there were all the roses grew did I get a rose tattoo, you know, from um, being in the thorns, you know, um, after uh, he uh, won. It's it's as one, um, I think it was Stanley Green who says it's the song is done in terms of a prize fight. Uh, round one, round two, round three, that's when the boy KO'd me. Um, the title song, I think, is really quite terrific. And um, it was the very first song uh, that I taught my young son to sing at the age of three years old. He could do it perfectly. I doubt he could do it now, but anyway. Um, so it's a commercial show. Um, the 11 o'clock number is called A Word a Day, in which um, Phil Silva's challenges Rosemary and vice versa to um, identify words and uh, give definitions of words. And, of course, they're all malapropisms, and um, uh, it's great fun. So just for the sake of escapist fun, I would definitely go with uh, Top Banana. People would say to me, oh, this is your guilty pleasure. Um, <laughs> first off, I get no pleasure from guilt, and um, you know, it's a pleasure. Um, <laughs> if, it, if it's something you enjoy, it's pleasurable, and you need not feel guilty about it, I insist. <laughs> so uh, Top Banana is on my list. <laughs> Michael, what's next for you? Well, I mentioned... Uh, that I had uh, focused on the multiple disc recordings, uh, you know, in order mm-hmm. to uh, fill up one's time on the desert island. But again, uh, many of many of them are just wonderful, just in terms of quality alone. And uh, some others I would mention are, uh, first of all, Candide, uh, which is a great score. Again, many many different editions, many different editions of it. Maybe even more than than those other things that I mentioned. Um, I think I would pick personally. There's a wonderful New York City Opera recording from 
quite a few years ago with David Eisler and Erie Mills and John Langston. Um, that's my uh, preferred recording. Uh, if you want, well, in terms of uh, completeness and also just the, the entirety of it, but you would have to have the original broadcast uh, recording with Barbara Cook and Robert Roundsville, et cetera. Uh, even though that's only, it was only one LP, uh, they fit a lot onto it and it's absolutely magnificent. Um, and then a couple of others are, uh, well, uh, Ragtime, uh, the original Broadway cast recording, uh, again, for completeness purposes, but also the performances are so wonderful. Um, there are a couple a couple of tracks that I actually prefer on the um, the previous recording that I got. This is I don't know if it's referred to as the concept recording, but the the uh, original one disc recording um, that was done pre Broadway. Hmm. Uh, but uh, so if you could have both of them, that would be great. But um, the Broadway one is is just just beautiful with the, that amazing Aaron's and Flaherty score and those incredible performances by Brian Stokes Mitchell and Marin Maisie and, and all of those other folks. Um, and that's a score that uh, I think is deservedly considered one of the masterpieces uh, of musical theater and certainly, uh, certainly of the modern era. And isn't it amazing that that uh, first album got made? Um, it really showed that people knew that something great was coming. Mm. Um, not, uh, the fact that RCA said, uh, we've got to do this. And um, the fact that um, so many people had their appetites whetted for this show as a result of that recording. And uh, it was so wonderful to get um, the two disc set that followed, of course, once it opened on Broadway. But uh, yes, Ragtime is uh, an unquestioned masterpiece, and it's just amazing that that novel could have been distilled into the show that it was. Uh, Aronson Flaherty just very recently did uh, for Playbill.com a track-by-track analysis and uh, commentary on the on the the Broadway cast recording. And that is something you should definitely look up. Uh, I have it already. Uh, (laughs) It was was, uh, one of the biggest clicked through articles of the year on Broadway stars stars so far. Yeah. So I'll throw that into the show notes. That's, it was a great thing. I just spoke to Sammy Cannold who do, who directed ragtime on Ellis. Um, and we, we talked about the, uh, about the, the recordings of Ragtime, uh, and we also talked about, you know, what the possibility of Ragtime and Ellis going forward is. And it's funny, Michael, uh, we almost uh, invoked your name during it because we talked about the sound system out on Ellis Island and how it's just not conducive to theater. And that's one of the big challenges there for getting Ragtime done again out on Ragtime and Ellis. Right. Um, that they're actually raising money to put a proper sound system in that hall. Yes, uh, I think you mentioned that. That's that would be absolutely amazing. Yeah, insofar as the um, concept album of Ragtime, uh, I think that Garth was using it to raise money, uh, uh, and I think that that was really uh, uh, important to it. And then the the Broadway, the full. Broadway thing, I think, was a contractual obligation that they had to fulfill. 
I see. Uh, but thank goodness, because I totally agree with you. I love both of those recordings so much. Yeah, there are times when I, have, uh, I simply don't have the time to listen to the two CD set, but <laughs> you do get a nice taste of it uh, from the concept recording. Um, I, I have to say um, that so many people, when uh, this topic is mentioned, I'm surprised it hasn't come up now, uh, mentioned Follies. But the thing is, um, I can no longer listen to the original cast album of Follies now that I know that there's so much more to it than mm. uh, Capital gave it back in 1971. Um, it, it's right away from Beautiful Girls, not hearing all those wonderful lyrics, I, I get very frustrated. So my go-to album for Follies seems to be the um, event that took place at Avery Fisher Hall many moons later, which indeed I attended. And um, as, as I've said before, at the end of the evening when Sondheim came on stage, a sound erupted from me that I haven't heard before or since. Um, just a, <laughs> a roar of appreciation and pleasure and respect. Um, but that's the one I go to um, more often than not. And in second place is the one at Paper Mill, because I know this is a minority opinion, but I love the song, Ah, But Underneath, and um, I like it much more than Lucy and Jesse, and so I enjoy hearing it. And uh, the other songs that um, Robert Sher put on the album um, that came from various, um, <laughs> they were dropped, they were considered, all that kind of business. So uh, the Follies album, um, those two are the ones that I go to. And I'm just sorry to say, even though the performances are magnificent, as you don't need me to tell you on that original cast album i'm just too frustrated by the missing lyrics yeah hmm uh, michael any more oh I, another one i wanted to mention is the golden apple um and that was a uh really uh unexpected pleasure when uh a complete recording of it was released in 2015, uh, this is a show that opened on Broadway in 1954, and um, unfortunately, uh, well, it was not a hit, so that's probably uh, the explanation for why, a uh, part of the explanation for why uh, it only got a single LP recording, and unfortunately, it was done by RCA, which in those days especially was not anywhere near as good at that as Columbia was. Um, so it's not good at all. It's, it's highly, highly severely truncated as you might imagine, uh, because, uh, they, you know, in those days they could only fit at most one hour at absolute most one mm -hmm. hour of music on an LP. And a lot of them had considerably less than that even. Um, so this is, uh, yeah, so it's it's very truncated. It's uh, in quite poor mono sound. And on top of all that, um, because so much mm -hmm. was cut out of it, uh, it was felt that um, they needed uh, some kind of narration to tie the plot together for the listener. And so John Latouche, um, who wrote the lyrics, the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant mm, lyrics mm. to the show, to, uh, to beautiful music by Jerome Moross. Um, he wrote a special narration in rhyme couplets that, uh, I mean, I just think it didn't, you know, I, I'm sure he wrote it very quickly and it, now it comes across as really kind of twee um, and not very good at all. Whereas, as I said, the lyrics themselves are still 
still <laughs> beyond brilliant. They're just witty and 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 charming and and uh, very moving when they they need to be. And they're they're some of the greatest lyrics ever written for musical theater. So that that all was very very unfortunate. And as I say, it wasn't until 2015 um, that. Uh, uh, PS Classics released a recording of a live performance of the uh, lyric stage in Irving, Texas, and um, you know, I, I guess it uh, it became apparent to people, uh, especially as recording technology uh, improved over the years, and and especially for live performances, that that is a way that you could do something like that and make it be affordable rather than um, necessarily bring people into a studio and record, uh, you know, a, t- uh, a two and a half hour or three hour show or however long it is. Um, so that is re- a really wonderful, amazing, unexpected pleasure. And this, the uh, performances on that are are very strong across the board and the sound quality is superb and it's like almost a miracle that it's that it exists so i would uh rate that as another uh multiple disc album uh that is going to give you a lot of bang for your buck in terms of the quantity but also just quality wise it's right up there at the top of the echelon Lyric Stage, uh, Stephen Jones, who runs it, um, it really uh, takes chances. Um, I went there to see Pleasures and Palaces, uh, um, the 1965 Frank Lester show that closed on the road. And um, I also went there to see The Grass Harp, my beloved Grass Harp. And uh, he's done Too Many Girls, uh, so many uh, obscure shows. And with Pleasures and Palaces, I don't know if he does this all the time. I guess what Golden Apple would suggest he does, a full orchestra. A full orchestra. Um, so, uh, yes, that's a very valuable recording, and uh, we're very lucky to have it. Peter, what's next for you? Um, the decline and fall of the entire world as seen through the eyes of Cole Porter. <laughs> this was a 1965 off-Broadway review. And uh, while I don't like reviews when I'm sitting in the theater, I certainly like them on disc. And um, this was a real introduction to me. Uh, back then, because I, Cole Porter had very few cast albums um, from his heyday back in the um, late 20s and all through the 30s and even through much of the 40s. There were there were no uh, cast albums for um, Panama Hattie or something for the boys. Mexican Hayride got a, a, a truncated one, but by the time I was getting interested, try to find it. So... Um, so this was a real revelation to me, um, hearing songs like The Leader of the Big Time Band, which I went crazy for. Um, in, in those days when we had second sides, the second side of this album to me is one of the best second sides ever, starting with Farming, one of um, Cole Porter's list songs, uh, where he talks about everybody's moving to Bucks County um, during the summertime, uh, that this was the thing to do among the elite. Um, and um, followed by Give Him the Ooh La La, uh, beautifully done by Elmarie Wendell, who later turned out to be a, a TV star. Make it another old-fashioned please by Carmen Alvarez, a woman who had been cursed with one flop after another, but here she really showed what talent she had. And one of my favorite piano rideouts of the uh, entire cast album um, series. Um, Down in the Depths, Kay Ballard doing that song um, in the style of Mabel Mercer, which is very funny. 
most gentlemen don't like love. They knew uh, Ben Bagley, uh, who put it together, knew that this would be a great 11 o'clock number, and it certainly was. And then there's this fascinating medley where they um, <laughs> they sing a line from a song, and what the last word of the song is then is the first word of the next section, uh, the next song that they do. And it's really quite something to hear. Um, so this is definitely on my list of um, favorite albums of all time. So yes, um, if we had electricity or enough batteries to uh, sustain a uh, Desert Island um, record player slash CD player, whatever, um, this would certainly be on my list. <laughs> uh, Michael, what's next for you? Um, I think that maybe I'll end with Sweeney Todd. Ah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, an absolute masterpiece for the ages. I'll never forget um, experiencing that score for the first time. I think it was uh, the f like the first performance after the reviews came out, sitting in what was then the Eurus Theater, and I, I was just absolutely blown away. I remember the the opening just knocked me, you know, for a loop. And with that chorus, that those sopranos hitting those incredible high notes, and then Len Carew uh, entering up up on on, on a on a elevator on a, on a uh, trap door uh, on, on the stage and singing attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. And then it just went from one incredible moment to another. Uh, I remember the first time I heard pretty women, <laughs> I was, I was just mm. ravished by it. And it, it, you know, that this incredibly beautiful song was be, being sung in this context by this guy who we knew was about to, slash somebody's throat um that that was amazing and as i've said many times i am i am so so in awe of especially of people like stephen sondheim who can write music and lyrics at that level it's it's just uh you know whether or not you believe in god uh, <laughs> um you you have to think that that person was somehow touched by genius, uh, by some being or so, or or or, or whatever, or it just happens through the cosmos somehow. Um, that that is an amazing recording, and I think you can um, you can, you're safe just sticking with the original, which was originally released on two LPs and now is on two CDs, uh, not the whole show, but probably about 95% of it, I, I think. Um, some dialogue cut and maybe a little tiny bit of music material, but it's it's pretty amazing. And it does have um, on it, uh, Peter discussed this quite recently, uh, although the judge's song, the judge's uh, song titled Joanna uh, was not in the original production. It was recorded for the cast album and, and is on it. Um, and uh, so, it, and that's been restored for, for most, if not all productions that I've ever seen since then. Um, so yeah, the original is, is great that, you know, Lansbury and uh, carry absolutely definitive. Um, there is, uh, uh, there are other recordings. Um, there's a New York Philharmonic recording, with George Hearn and Patti Lapone, and George Hearn was another great Sweeney Todd, so you might want to get that one also. Uh, and I, I think that's basically it. That the movie 
soundtrack is was it what it is and it's something very different and it has its pleasures but uh if you're going to stick to you know definitive recordings and ones you want to bring to that desert island that we've mentioned um i would say the original will will do just fine it's absolutely astounding all right uh peter do you have anything else that you wanted to mention well, we'll go from the sublime to the ridiculous because um, I, <laughs> the original London cast album of Ambassador. Now, if you go to IBDB, uh, you will see Ambassador ran 19 performances. No, it did not. It didn't make that many. It ran nine. I know where they got that figure. The best plays uh, annual uh, clocks it at 19. Uh, it, that was a misprint because if you look carefully, it opened on November 19th, 1972 and it closed November 25th, 1972. You can't get 19 performances in six days, but you can do nine. So it opened on a Saturday and closed on a Saturday, much like anyone can whistle. Why do I like this show? Well, I think it has a lot to do with fact when I get up in the morning and I start looking through my collection alphabetically, it comes up quickly. And so as a result, I've <laughs> listened to it a lot. But um, Hal Hackety, um, who really could write wonderful lyrics, did a very good job here in adapting a Henry James novel called Ambassadors, plural, uh, The Ambassadors. And... Um, it's about um, a woman. Um, we're, we're back in the 19th century, and um, it's about a woman who um, has a son who's gone to Paris. Uh, they're very straight-laced New England people, and she's got a son who's gone to Paris, and she's very afraid that he's getting in with the wrong crowd. And uh, from his letters, she's getting the impression that he's really fooling around with an older woman. So she has her lawyer decide um, that he should go over there. Now, he's a very, very tightly buttoned up guy. And he's a man you can set your watch by, as the opening song goes. A song, by the way, that was dropped for Broadway that shouldn't have been. Um, because everybody's talking about, oh, you can always depend on him. He always shows up on time. He's a man you can set uh, your watch by. And his last lyric is, assuming a man has to set a watch. Hmm. So that one line tells us, that he has a bit of doubt of how he's lived his life and who he is. So that's really something. When she says, I want you to go to Paris and um, see what's going on with my kid, he gives uh, he has an internal monologue called uh, Lambert's Quandary, where he thinks about why, why uh, uh, this is terrible. I have to go over there. I have to monitor the kid. I mean, he's an adult, you know, so on and so forth. He goes through all that. And again, the last line is potent when he says, but on the other hand, I may never get the chance to see Paris again. So again, these little last lines, these two last lines really tell us about who he is, who his character is, that while he's lived his life in a very conventional way, there's a part of him ready to be unconventional. And boy, does that happen once he gets over there. Oh, there are some terrible numbers. What can you do with the nude? Don't let me, don't get me started. But so much of it is really quite pleasant, quite beautiful. Uh, Howard Keel played the role. And um, when he gets to Paris, he meets the woman that, um, that uh, Chad, uh, the young man, has been um, consorting with. He's very surprised to hear it because she's much older than the young man. And um, but as she sings, I'm young with him. <sighs> I'm going to bring up something else that's not terribly pleasant, but the composer was a guy named Don Goman, G-O-H-M-A-N. And um, shortly after the show failed on it failed in London, but they brought it to Broadway anyway. And Gene Dengenery, who 
started Footlight Records when it was on 11th Street. And for those who remember that store, you may recall there was a, 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 a window card for Ambassador in that, sh- in that shop. And that's the reason why, because he produced it on Broadway. Um, but um, shortly after the failure of the Broadway production, uh, Don Goldman committed suicide. Now, some mm. years ago, I got um, a um, an email or a letter. I don't remember which. It was an email um, from somebody saying, I've been really investigating this Don Goldman thing, and um, everybody is very vague about what happened to him. And uh, he said, we don't even know when he died. Well, I remember that the best plays used to put a necrology at the end, and it simply said summer of whatever year it was that he died. And he said, you know, there's a lot more to this. People don't know very much about it. So I'm putting it out there. If anybody knew Don Goman, G-O-H-M-A-N, um, knew anything about him, knew, knew anything about the circumstances of his death, I'd like to hear it. Um, but uh, I think he wrote some lovely, lovely music. And even though this is hardly a classic, I do think that um, – these scores that we don't hear nearly as much are, are are ones that we really should investigate. And if we were on desert Island, we'd have the time. I was uh, looking up ambassador for the show notes and uh, the New York public library has got a bunch of Don Goman's papers, ah. uh, which is very interesting. Ah. It might, might, might hold some information there might, for you. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, library for the performing arts over at Lincoln center has all that stuff. So, um, all right. Um, this is, uh, quite the list. And, uh, I think that I have to apologize in advance for, uh, to our listeners because I, we understand that this show might, ha- might have cost you hundreds of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Money well spent. <laughs> Money well spent and get, you know, as we are all on our virtual desert islands right now, mm. perhaps uh, our listeners can chime in with some of their favorites. I'd like to pose something to Peter and Michael if maybe we can talk about uh, briefly next week. Uh, are there uh, cash recordings or other types of recordings that um, you like one track from? And you put uh. it on and play just one track. Oh, that's a then, terrific idea. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's do that let's next week. Talk that's about great. that next week. And that's listeners great also. For you. Um, I, I just want to list uh, some of my things. My things, are, uh, my albums are much more contemporary uh, um, than uh, what Peter and Michael have talked about. Uh, I started off with the falsettos. I, I just adore falsettos. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite year, the Aronson Flatter- mm. Flaherty show. Uh, the last five years, as we talked about, uh, I just love Jason Robert Brown in, in the last five years. Uh, the original Evita, I think that mm. it, the original Evita was the first cash recording I owned. I think uh-huh. that was it. I'm not positive. Jesus Christ Superstar, but the Australian revival cast in 1992 with John Farnham, who was an Australian uh, rock star. Uh, I really like that superstar recording. The London Chess, uh, London Phantom co- recording, the original London Phantom recording. And Michael already mentioned Sweeney Todd. So that's my list. But um, I, did, I did want to slip in yeah, uh, sure. on it because I really do think it is appropriate. Um, if you, if uh, listeners want to check out castalbumreviews.com, oh, absolutely. you will yeah. find uh, comparisons of multiple recordings 
of of many 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 shows um uh including many that we've we've talked about today uh and i think that's uh interesting to see comparison reviews by where, where the one writer uh, listens to all available recordings and, and compares them and reviews them. Uh, so that's something that that's a resource that you have available for you. I, I think that that's, that that's awesome. And uh, I highly encourage everybody to check out that it's, it's not just uh not just really amazing, but it's just a tribute to how much Michael, you and your team love uh, cash recordings. It's just yes. wonderful. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you're going to find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to all of the things we've talked about today are found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. So, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? The question was, if you were playing Monopoly, sometime during the game, you'd most likely have the chance to sing an appropriate Rogers and Hart song from one of their 1930s hits. <laughs> what song would that be? Well, undoubtedly, during the course of the game, you'd have the chance to sing a song from On Your Toes, There's a Small Hotel. <laughs> Tony Janicki, after his humiliating Lazy Bones finish of the previous week when he didn't answer till Thursday night, late, rebounded to be first. Juliet Green was second, followed by Nikki Juven, Ingrid Gammerman, Robert Lobiondo, Jack Leshner, Fred Abramowitz, Thomas Farrelly, Brigadude, Kathy Jones, Richard Carey, Chris Skiles, and Cheryl Hodges Stern. Now, that's a big list. Um, but I also want to acknowledge Joanna Beasy, who also noted that another possible one, if you're losing the game, is I've Got $5 from America's Sweetheart. And Ed Glazer and Noel Katz gets the, guessed that one, too. And while America's Sweetheart was a 1930s Rogers and Hart show, I'm not sure it was a hit. It ran 135 performances, which in those days may have been long enough to return its investment, which to me, that's the one and only definition of a hit if it made back its money. But we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, with all these names, believe me, many of you said that was too easy. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> no more Mr. Nice Guy. How about this one? Some characters in musicals set in mythical lands sing about the fictional places where they live. For example, the townspeople of Brigadoon do that when they sing the title song. Some characters are in a real place when they sing of a mythical land. Peter Pan is in London when he sings of Neverland. Conversely, some characters are in a mythical land when they sing of a real place. <laughs> Dorothy and the Wiz is in Oz when she sings of Home. But a famous musical that's received a couple of Broadway revivals not only has its leading lady in a fictional place, but when she sings her first song, she's singing about a completely different fictional place. What are the two locales? What's the show? Who's the character? As Conrad Birdie says in Honestly Sincere, suffer. <laughs> 
All right. So if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Something in them cheers the air. Pretty women, silhouetted, stay within you. Glancing. Stay forever, breathing lightly. Pretty women, pretty women. How they may